Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be talking with the principal of an elementary school we featured in a five-part series. Jackie Valley, who wrote that series, will be here too. And as always, we'll close with some to and fro and the issues of the day between myself and the Indies managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and elsewhere. Please subscribe and rate us. Tell everybody, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell someone you see on the street. Indie Matters. Let's get started first with my recap of some of the week's headlines from the Nevada Independent. The big political news this week was the bursting into the public square of an old story that has become new fodder in the governor's race. This complicated and unseemly issue has to do with a nasty breakup Democratic hopeful Steve Sisolak had with a girlfriend years ago and allegations she made in its wake. I won't go into the details here, but Republican contender Adam Laxalt is looking to exploit the old stories, which sparked not one, but two threatening letters to him recently. But Team Laxalt says they will not be intimidated by those letters from lawyers, and the issue is far from over. Check out the NevadaIndependent.com for details. But as I have said, this race will reach many low points before November. Our energy policy maven Riley Snyder wrote about a new report on the Energy Choice Initiative by the Gwynn Center. We posted the document, which is more than 100 pages. The bottom line? There is no bottom line. Too many uncertainties, but the think tank says that the ballot question won't automatically lower rates or energize the renewables market. My guess is the political pressure on the Gwynn Center was immense, so kudos to them for vetting this so thoroughly. Our healthcare expert, Megan Messerly, wrote about how access to healthcare in Nevada is still an issue despite the decline in the number of uninsured. Her deep dive into so-called narrow networks exposes a lot of loopholes in standards and regulations. It's well worth your time. There's plenty more on the site, too, including a Daniel Rothberg water story, a Tesla education cash infusion via Jackie, and our D.C. man, Humberto Sanchez, with a yucca angle on the soon-to-be justice, Brett Kavanaugh. Check out all the stories at thenevadaindependent.com. Even better, click on the Support Our Work page and... Support our work. We're a 5013C nonprofit. We'll be back in a moment with Margarita Gamboa. We're back on Indie Matters. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Our guest, Margarita Gamboa. I hope all of you took the time to read Jackie Valley's series about life at a local elementary school. It was a rare glimpse into what students, parents, and teachers experience. That series would not have been possible without the cooperation of the principal of that school, Sunrise Acres. Her name is Margarita Gamboa. Welcome to Indy Matters. Thank you very much for having me, John. You're welcome. Jackie's here, too. Hi, Jackie. Hello. So let me start it off, and I'm going to let Jackie take on most of the questioning here. Uh, you read the series, I'm sure, um, every word, maybe more than once, uh, uh, Principal Gamboa. What did you think? Did we capture what it's like, life at a school? I, I think uh, Jackie did an excellent job at um, really, I mean, uh, some of the parts even made me cry. <laughs> it seemed like I was reliving, uh, you know, part of the happenings in, at Sunrise Acres and, and even part of my life. 
You know, it's interesting you say, I mean, and Jackie knows this because I told her as I was editing it, some of the stuff is very, very wrenching, uh, both in a good way and a bad way. It brought me to tears because what it really captured, I thought, was uh, the challenges that everybody there in this little ecosystem is trying to overcome every day and the remarkable strides that have been made at Sunrise Acres despite a lot of the challenges. Talk a little bit about that. Well, absolutely. There's um, daily challenges that, that happen, and, and it's so unpredictable. You know, it, it's not where in, in a business setting you can kind of predict uh, what your profits are or your margins or, or whatever it may be. But um, in a social dynamic, um, and then where children come with so many challenges um, from their um, just day-to-day occurrences, uh, and even staff members, I mean, they might have uh, things in their lives that they're also dealing with. But uh, I guess the ecosystem that we've built is we're a family. Um, we take care of each other. Uh, we make sure that we're in this together. Um, and there's there's no black and white. There's there's always gray. And, and there's always um, a way to I guess, move forward, you know, and, and what I live by is things that I grew up with that were instilled in me. And uh, my grandmother was very impactful in my mom as a single mom. And I guess part of it was that she said, you know, everything has a remedy. Everything does except death. <laughs> so anything that we're living here um, has a solution. Uh, Jackie, uh, jump in here and, and tell uh, our listeners first before you uh, start peppering Principal Gamboa with questions a little bit about the school and why we chose this school. Yeah, I mean, it ended up being the perfect school to do this uh, series on. Um, it is located east of downtown um, near Eastern Avenue and uh, North 28th Street. So it's you know surrounded by a bunch of apartment complexes, some one-story homes, um, it's certainly not the roughest neighborhood, um, but it's maybe not the safest either. Uh, and so when we approached the school district about doing this project, uh, we met with the superintendent and some other uh, top-level officials, and we said, hey, we want to embed in a school for a year, but we don't want it to be you know, the lowest-performing, worst school, and we don't want it to be the best-performing school out in some far-flung suburb. You know, we were hoping to find a school that was somewhat representative of the challenges that um, the students and the staff face on a daily basis. And so that's how we landed on Sunrise Acres. Um, and it's a school that if you read the series, you'll, and we can talk about this more later, but um, when Principal Gamboa started, it was just entered into the turnaround zone. So it was a very low performing school at that point. Um, and the challenge was, or the goal was to bring it up in its star rating over the next three years. Um, and when I started, they just found out that they had reached four-star status. So what you had was like uh, this past school year was a really high-performing school in um, a, a struggling neighborhood to a certain extent. A lot of these kids come from very low-income families. Um, some are immigrant families, um, single-parent households, the whole gamut. And so um, the challenges that they have at home, they're bringing into the school environment as well to a certain extent. Okay, so the first thing I really wanted to ask you was I was there the whole year, got to observe um, all the highs and lows. But I was wondering if you could tell me what you thought the biggest challenge was last year. We chronicled a whole bunch throughout the series, but what really weighed on you the most? Gee, <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's hard to put a... Um a specific event or a specific, but you're, you're always, as a school principal, you're always um, wanting to make sure that there's student achievement. 
So increases in student achievement because you know um, that you're going to be seen and and your basically your whole reputation is is on this these stars star ratings right so you are constantly monitoring um, student achievements so it's um, just making sure and ensuring that you have the time to make sure that you look at the data uh, that you look at your numbers where you are with all the different assessments that we use um, and you want to make sure that that's happening. I mean, it should be happening, you know, in every classroom. Uh, but I, I, I would say that as the administrator point of view, that um, more of the, I guess, the emotional side is just making sure that my teachers are um, there to show up to, to make a difference, uh, that they're taking care of themselves. So making sure that I have the time to go into classrooms and, and visit with them and just not just monitor for for student achievement, but making sure that they're doing well, or what is it that they need. One thing you and I talked a lot about over the course of the year was different funding dilemmas. Um, Obviously, the school district has been cash strapped, and they've um, been doing budget cuts throughout the course of the school year. Um, And it sort of came to a head for Sunrise Acres um, in the middle of the year when you guys got your new budget, um, because all of a sudden there was this large reduction going into the upcoming school year. And I was wondering, I mean, how do you as an administrator talk to your staff about, you know, the budget realities and the fact that there's potentially less money coming in next year um, while still trying to, like, keep them motivated to helping and educating this really at-risk population? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, I think we're we're very grateful to uh, Governor Sandoval for allocating uh, an additional million dollars to Sunrise Acres because it is a victory school. Um, although I will say that if it was not a victory school, um, we would have lost $1 million, almost $1 million out of our strategic funding. Explain what that is. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but some people might not know what a victory school is. So explain what that is. So a victory school is um, a school that is one in one of the lowest um, uh, zip codes where the parents earn less money. So it's uh, social economic status there. Um, and I, and so they take uh, different sections of the, the state. And so then schools are assigned based on how much income is in that particular zip code. Uh, so we're, um, I think, among probably between 15 and uh, 30,000, I believe, is what we did research on, uh, 15 and $30,000 per year per household. So um, we were able to get this additional uh, funding. Um, but it is very frustrating that, you know, if, if it wasn't the case, um, uh, the, the struggles of ensuring that you keep the same staff, uh, we would have lost about 11 staff members um, there. And so then your class size reduction is gone. And how class size reduction is, is assigned, um, this uh, formula is assigned to the district, but not to particular school. So it's, it's very tricky as to how then those class size reduction dollars are um, dispersed through each school. And so we would have been hit uh, again with losing 11 staff members because our progress. So from two to four, then, you know, they figure, well, you're not the most needy school at this time. So then it goes to um, the next one. But then, you know, you go into a vicious cycle after that because um, you might not need it this upcoming year, but then you're going to need it next year because your your scores aren't going to be as, as um, up there and and, you know, your, your class sizes are going to go up 
teacher morale goes down because now they're dealing with 36 students in fourth grade or, you know, and some of my colleagues might say, well, that's what I'm dealing with in a suburban school district, in a suburban school, but it's not the same. Can you elaborate on that? (laughs) Um, It's not the same. I was a principal at Reedham Elementary School in the South, Mountain's Edge area. And so it's not the same to teach a student that comes with um, limited English proficient needs and ACEs, adverse childhood um, effects, uh, than a student that's in a suburban area and they have two parents that work uh, or even one parent but is doing well off that can afford a house, you know, in a nice area with a nice park and parks, plural, because you know, we don't really have parks in Sunrise Acres either. But, um, and so it's it's definitely not the same thing, um, you know, with these uh, challenges of budget, you know, don't get me started with that because <laughs> I have an opinion on that too. What's but, your opinion? Well, my, I guess my opinion is that I'll, I'll first um, disclose that I don't, I'm not in the political arena. I don't know a lot of po- politics. Uh, I don't know that you don't know how lucky the you formula, are. formula, <laughs> and I don't know how lucky. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I do think that it takes more money to teach and to uh, increase achievement in a student that has more variables um, than a student that does not. So I'm talking about the at-risk factor, the uh, limited English proficient factor, the special ed factor. Um, and so when we get down to funding, those students need to have more of a weighted funding um, because same is not equal and, and fair isn't equal. But they started to address that a, a little bit, right? I mean, you mentioned what Sandoval did with the, with the victory schools. There is, they have done some, not all schools have benefited from these so-called Zoom schools where, where they're giving more money for uh, English uh, language learners. There's talk about changing the actual funding formula to change the weights in the funding formula. There is, believe me, I'm not known for my optimism, but but isn't, isn't there some reason to be optimistic that they're starting to understand the concerns that you're raising right now? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, you know, again, you know, I, I like you said, you know, I don't know how lucky I am, right, with those additional <laughs> million dollars. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, SB 178 as, as well. I mean, so they are starting to recognize. Um, I just wish, I guess, that there was why having to put all these little grants in place where it should be something. It the, Here it is. You have these kids this is what you're getting in addition. I mean, to an that. ongoing funding stream is as 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 opposed to suddenly saying, "Oh, let's let's give them a million dollars this year and hope it works out." Yeah, and then we change uh, uh, governors, and then it's a new thing or a new grant, uh, you know, whatever they want to develop as a grant. And our kids are kids, and our kids are going to be here, and and we're raising our kids, and um, you know, it. it if we want to get into politics, well, sometimes we can't attract those big companies either because our education system, you know, it it. it we're kind of still trying to figure things out here and give who needs it, give it to them. They need it. Have them work what they need to work out with that money rather than, okay, now this little fund or this little pot of money and, and just that little carrot out there. Um, 
I just I that's hard for me to understand. And like I said, I, I don't understand all the politics behind it. Um, I, I do, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Jackie jump in in a second here. But I want to tell you, and, and, and I think you know this, and I hope our listeners will realize one of the reasons we did this project, and Jackie and I talked about this at the beginning, is that so many legislators who are making these decisions don't regularly visit schools. They see kids and teachers and staff members as just, you know, statistics in, in, in a budget and they're going to do a formula and they're going to do division. They don't know what it's really like to be in a school. And, I, and our hope is that people who make these kinds of decisions are going to read what 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 uh, uh, Jackie so beautifully described at your school and say, wait a second, these are not just numbers. I, I know I, I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, but that's really what we're hoping that they will see because it's not, not every school is the same as as you described it. And that's what I was going to bring up was, you know, you had mentioned the adverse childhood experiences known as ACEs, um, at-risk students, students who are special ed um, or coming from low-income households. Um, we saw that a lot over the course of the year and chronicled that. Uh, the one student who sticks out in my mind, um, we named in the story Jordan, but he was the one who was basically at this point being raised by an older brother and the brother's girlfriend. Um, uh, he was reading, he was a fifth grader, probably reading at a first grade level. Um, but he was just one child. I mean, you know, so, I mean, you could probably talk to any kid in that school and a lot of them had, you know, if not stories to that extreme, they had these really hard challenges in their lives. Um, and there's been a, talk of, you know, expanding social emotional learning and, and the mental health components into schools. But could you ballpark for us how much time you think your teachers and staff spend simply dealing with kids' emotional baggage, you know, each day or, or over the course of the year, percentage-wise maybe, um, just so that they can simply be at ease and sit down and learn? Um. Our teachers spend a lot of time on that, uh, especially in their planning, you know, even even ahead of the uh, when the actually student, the, their physical being <laughs> is there. Uh, they have to think about these um, concerns. You know, if you're going to put out even manipulatives, like you need to make sure that there's, you know, something that they can also manipulate cubes and stuff for each individual student because, you know, sometimes they don't know about sharing. They don't know about cooperative learning. So you have to almost first individualize, have them manipulate an object and then get into the group work. So they have to, you know, plan for all of this even before the lesson delivery. Uh, and that's social aspect. You know, that's just the the fair bare um, surface of a social aspect that you have to encounter in an at-risk school. Now you talk about, you know, those, those deep-rooted um, uh, adverse child experiences that they've had, you know, that trauma – then, you know, all of a sudden, the, let's say, for example, you're doing the cubes and they start throwing the cubes and you, you say, oh, they're not following directions. No, our teachers know that it's not um, that they're not following directions or that they're trying to be mean. Is that there's something deeper uh, that they're trying to um, process. And so then the teacher has to get at their level you know, um, where they're not this uh, looking down and pointing the finger at them and, and um, scolding them, but actually, you know, it's okay. Um, what do you need? Uh, do you want a quiet area? Do you want to talk to the counselor? Uh, and so then it kind of starts there. Um, and then we've had situations where, you know, then you find out that either there was a, you know, their parents got in a fight or parent passed away or... Um, 
molestation, whatever it may be, you know, and then, you know, we go through the counselor, but the counselor also is at Sunrise Acres was more of a, another additional teaching staff. So teaching the students in, in social um, settings, like, you know, responsibility, this is what responsibility is. This is what respect is. And so more direct uh, lessons for that. So we at Sunrise Acres, we had a social worker as well. So then, you know, um, if it was a, a death or a molestation or, um, you know, my parent, you know, I have cuts, uh, bruises, then the social worker would do, do more of the more severe, um, I guess, intake of the situation. So, you know, our teachers, like I said, I mean, are they're, they're constantly on, on for what social um, expectations there should be set. Um, you know, they have and, to be social workers so, too. Even yeah. though you only have one, right? And Absolutely. That's part of their job. Absolutely. They they wear different hats. And I I guess that's a good segue into the class size discussion um, because if you have a large number of students with all those needs on top of it, it seems like it would only uh, snowball the amount of attention and work that they need to do. Um, I was at a state board of education meeting earlier today, and once again, it was there was a discussion about student-to-teacher ratios, um, so class sizes. What do you feel is like a, a good class size? Because there's always the two different schools of thought that the one that you know class sizes should be smaller, and that's really what's best for students. But then on the other end, you'll have people tell you that, well, it's all about teacher management and classroom management, and so we can have bigger classes if teachers have better professional development and strategies to work with kids. Where do you stand on that issue? Well, I I guess I would stand on. Gee, uh, it's it's a uh, we're at we we need to realize and and look at who who's our staff. You know, who's our staff, and we have staff that on average they're teaching. Um, uh, career is between one brand new and five years. I mean, that's that's their average years of experience. So relatively inexperienced staff. So a relatively inexperienced staff, you're going to need less numbers, you know, and if you had a more experienced seasoned staff, then you might not, you know, and so it just kind of depends. Um, and I've been at staff, you know, I've had a staff where They've been more seasoned, more grounded in the community. They're part of the community, like I said, in Mountain's Edge. Uh, they lived in the community. So they might be able to handle more kids. But when you are dealing with an at-risk situation, uh, school and your teaching staff averages about one to five years, you're going to the numbers are going to drive your results. I mean, it just makes sense. You know? What's the average class size at Sunrise Acres? Um, we were like very fortunate. Um, kinder through third grade, the average was 16 to 19. Uh, and then in fourth and fifth, um, probably between 27 and 30. I, I guess, you know, beyond the issues that, that Jackie brought up and that you've talked about with, with these at-risk uh, uh, kids because of what might be going on at home, and I'm sure a lot of them come to school hungry as well, and and and, and you have that problem. Uh, uh, there's a very large uh, Hispanic population at, at Sunrise Acres, as, as there is at, at many other schools, and it seems to me 
that that these kids are almost being set up to fail in some ways at the early grades. When teachers, whether they're one to five years or 10 to 20 years experience, they come in and there's this population of kids, some of whom can speak English fine, some of whom don't speak English very well, and some of whom may not be able to speak any English or very, or very close to it. How do you educate kids in that environment? Um, y- you sink or swim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's uh, unfortunately. Did, the, did I describe the, the challenge unfairly? Yeah. I, I mean, no. it, it, it seems overwhelming every yeah. time I think of it. How how teachers compile, and then that's then the kids get into the later grades, and they're not prepared for them. We have this very high high school dropout rate, but it's essentially been baked in early on. Even if you're the greatest principal, even if you have the greatest teachers in the world, there, right? It's so difficult. It is. It's it's very challenging. Um, you know you. I mean, I guess I can relate, you know, with um, being a um, Spanish speaker, you know, and and uh, ELL student myself. <clears throat> excuse me, um, that it's it's very challenging um, to acquire the language, and and it is a sink or swim swim situation. Uh, we don't have enough bilingual teachers. Um, we sometimes don't even have the the right mindset, to be honest with you. As, what does as a that district. mean, right mindset? The right mindset means that um, y- we should think that no matter what zip code you're in, or what baggage or aces you bring, that I'm still going to hold you accountable for the material and the standards that I need to teach. Um, and you know, I used to tell my own children, my own personal children, I. I want you to make sure that you ask the teacher to teach you a different way if you don't understand it. Because I'm sorry, as an administrator, as a teacher myself, coming home and then having to reteach and teach you know my own kids. <laughs> so, and that's something that I even uh, would tell our parents, you know, during parent meetings. If your child comes home and doesn't understand something, tell them to go the next day and tell their teacher, "Can you please explain this to me a different way?" Because teachers are the experts. They are the ones with the toolbox. They are the ones that can explain things a different way. Now, if we're uh, teaching staff between one year and five years, well, first, it's going to take time. But second, we need good professional development. You know, we need good professional development in the school, or we need good professional development philosophy as a school district, or even as a state. Um, but it, it, it is, uh, and I, I don't mean just sink or swim for the student. I'll be honest with you, it's sink or swim for the teacher too because I have a lot of teachers that after a year, they're like, this isn't for me because <laughs> it's, it's hard. But, but what's interesting in what you're saying, and, and uh, I, I guess I hadn't even thought about this, it's almost like you're saying there's a tough love aspect of this. In other words, I understand your challenges. It's very tough. Maybe you've been abused at home. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you can't speak the language that well. But you're here to learn. Mm-hmm. And so it's you're putting – even though these kids are pretty young, you're saying you know we need to teach them in the schools because you can't count on the parents all the time either that they're responsible for their own education. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it takes the responsibility of also, you know, the um, us as administrators um, delivering that um, message of to the parents, wherever, whoever the family member is, grandparent, you know, two parents, what, um, foster parent, that we still need to go home and make a spot, a room for a child to come home and either read their book or talk to them. Speak to them. I mean, sometimes with so much technology, uh, you know, we don't speak to our children as right. much. Um, 
No uh, phones at the dinner table? Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but making sure that also our parents are empowered with what the different benchmarks should be at different grade levels and the different expectations. So our parents received, um, you know, your child should be reading at this level by this time. And in, in, in not necessarily grade level, but because now it's all about growth, right? And so it's, and if they're they're reading, you know, let's say 20 words per minute in September, then they should be reading 10% more in October, 10% more in November. And they should be able to have that guidance from, you know, my colleagues as administrators. We have less than five minutes left if you have another question, Jackie. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know, the one part of the story that, you know, we really didn't get into was the presence of the psychologist at the school. And he uh, handles several different schools. So he's not only at Sunrise Acres, um, but he has a very large caseload. And from my understanding, he's the person that's also... Um, the one who would diagnose learning disabilities um, and that type of thing as well. Um, but I was hoping you could speak to, uh, you know, the importance of that role in a school, um, but also like the, ch- the challenges of having too few psychologists. Because um, quite frankly, the reason he wasn't incorporated in the series was because although I talked to him a little bit here and there, um, he was just so overwhelmed. Like we didn't really have a good chance to sit down and chat more. <laughs> yes. Um, I think that there are so many schools that can benefit from a full-time school psychologist, and even if we had the funding, we, where are they? So we, we need to do a better job of, um, um, you know, addressing the, the issue of what, what the role of the school psychologist is, uh, because I think right now the role of the school psychologist is really to um, assess students for special education. I, I mean, that, it is what it is. Um, and so that's why we had to be empowered with having a school counselor and a social worker because the school psychologist could assist in some uh, shape or form, but his is more of a collecting of data and going and observing the individual student just to get them to, to qualify for special education services and then on to the next kid and on to the next school. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, we had a fabulous uh school psychologist. I mean, he's awesome. He's bilingual. And so he's even, you know, um, used uh, and abused um, more than the average school psychologist. Um, But uh, it's something that we need, we do, we need need, um, um, some, some desperate help there. I was hoping to add one last question. um, And that was looking forward. So um, for those of you who don't know, Principal Gamboa, has accepted a position at Harris Elementary, which has also just been entered into the turnaround zone. So I believe, is it a one-star school? Yes, correct. So they're on the pathway that Sunrise Acres formerly was on to increase their um, academic um, So she took a cushy job? Is that that what I understand? (laughs) (laughs) So basically, she jumped right back into um, another very stressful situation. Um, And I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about how you're gearing up to, once again, try to... Uh, bring another school up? Oh, my. Well, first of all, I had to um, go in and make sure that I, we call it sharpen the saw, and and took a a nice, beautiful trip Mm -hmm. and very blessed um, to Spain. Um, But coming back, you know, I'm packing, organizing. um, Follow me on Twitter, I guess. Uh, I'll I'll be posting pictures of, of the 
the status of the school and, and where we are right now, I have 15 vacanc- teacher vacancies. Wow. And I know that as a, as a school district, we have about 600. <laughs> so, and um, the people that I've been uh, contacting for interviews, uh, they, you know, they're like, I already accepted a position or um, I'm not looking right now or it's too late to move. <laughs> so right now our pool's not very big either. So um, I'm sure that I'm going to start with the same challenges, um, hiring a lot of long-term subs. Um, and so I'm looking at that list, um, at, you know, uh, tomorrow. Um, I'll be able to get that list so that I can start hiring some long-term subs for that. So the first is that, staffing. So uh, tell everybody, since you mentioned it, tell everybody listening what your Twitter handle is so they can follow your progress. Um, okay, it is, gee, and, and I'm, I'm new to Twitter, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I believe it's uh, uh, Gamboa Marge Vegas. Okay. Um, uh, I, I, we wish you the best of luck. I want to thank you again publicly as, 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 as the uh, editor of The Independent for giving us the opportunity to, to let Jackie do what she did. I, I think it is a very, very important story that she did. Uh, I, I really appreciate your willingness to be open to this. Uh, I thought she did a fantastic job. We're very proud. But I hope it has some impact. We're going to do I should tell our listeners and you, if you know, we're going to do a town hall based on, on, on that series uh, as school starts at some point, and we'll let everybody uh, know uh, what, what the date is of that. So, so Margarita Gambo, thanks for coming on Indie Matters. Best of luck in your new position. Too. Thank you very much. And i just like to say also, like I'm, I invite any politician to the school, a full, transparent, so they can really actually get to meet and see uh, the process or meet the students, the families, what, what it's really about. Yeah, and I think actually we as journalists should start asking these legislators and legislative candidates have you visited schools? I think it's a very good question. Anyhow, uh, Margarita Gamboa, thanks for coming on. Uh, Jackie, thanks for, for joining me as well uh, yeah. on Indie Matters. Thank we'll be you. back in a moment uh, with Elizabeth Thompson and myself talking about issues that have nothing to do with education. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. I'm the editor of the Nevada Independent, John Rawls, and I'm joined by my number two, who often thinks she's uh, the number one, Elizabeth Thompson. Hi, Elizabeth. Uh-huh. Hi, John. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a couple of things. First, uh, uh, Dean Heller, as always, is in the news. Uh, and there's a couple of interesting things on the site. One is you might want to go and check out my blog. Oh, I got a, We got a recording since uh, two of our staffers were called in a teletown hall meeting. Dean Heller said a lot of interesting things, including that he thinks the, the Robert Mueller probe it has gone on too long and it's time to clean it up. He also said that he's going to support the Energy Choice Initiative and a lot more. So go check that out. But our Humberto Sanchez... Uh, our, 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 our crack DC reporter, Elizabeth, had an interesting uh, take on, 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 on an angle uh, on, on the upcoming uh, soon-to-be almost-for-sure confirmation <laughs> of Brett Kavanaugh as the next Supreme Court justice replacing Anthony Kennedy. And that is uh, that he wrote uh, the, the majority opinion as a lower court judge uh, on an issue that uh, I have been covering since longer than Elizabeth has been alive. What is that all about? Uh, Well, listeners should go read uh, the story for certain, but in a nutshell, um, this judge back in 2013, uh, in writing um, the majority uh, opinion, um, basically said that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission 
um, was essentially in violation of federal uh, law because it had not yet done its job uh, in terms of deciding one way or another um, on a pending application at that time related to Yucca Mountain. Um, none of us would probably care about this, but uh, as you pointed out, he has now been nominated to the Supreme Court. Um, and so Senator uh, Dean Heller is going to have to think uh, about what he's going to do when it comes time to uh, thumbs up or thumbs down the nomination. Well, he's already essentially said, and we're, we're, we are recording this as we always do on Thursday afternoon, he's already essentially said he's going to vote for Kavanaugh. I don't think it's going to be anything of a stumbling block. But it's interesting because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, for people who don't know, has to license Yucca Mountain as a nuclear waste repository. And uh, Harry Reid, through various maneuvers and even stuffing the board of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission when, and putting one of his staff, former staffers on there, has been able to essentially scotch this process with the with the uh, enabling of the Obama uh, administration. And Kavanaugh's opinion, I hate to say this, and I don't know why I hate to say it, seemed to, <laughs> to make a lot of sense in the sense that basically saying, listen, do your job. You're yeah. supposed to do this, right? Absolutely. They were. They are supposed to do it. They should have done it. They didn't do it. Um, absolutely. I mean, he the, the decision is solid and sound, uh, and that's probably one reason why Heller feels comfortable um, supporting this guy because it, I think any judge uh, in his right mind would have would have made that uh, same call. Although there was a dissenting opinion at the time, which is interesting. Yeah, the interesting part of that, of course, is that that was written by Merrick Garland, who was the Supreme Court nominee of Barack Obama, who was never given uh, a hearing uh, thanks to the ruthless political machinations of one Mitch McConnell. <laughs> ah. uh, but uh, but I, of course, this is you know the world we live in now, Elizabeth. It doesn't matter whether this is the greatest opinion in the world or not. It's going to be used as an issue by Jackie Rosen uh, in, in, in the Senate race. I happen to think, again, as I said, uh, that, that it, the, the, the opinion makes sense to me uh, and, and the rest is all politics. I agree completely. It's a completely defensible decision. Um, I don't think it'll hurt Dean Heller one whit if he supports uh, Kavanaugh in that, for that uh yeah, seat on that bench. I, I don't think yucca is going to be an issue at all, but but uh, I, I am told by Dean Heller that if we do not reelect him, that Yucca Mountain is coming, which <laughs> I've, I've heard before, I think from Harry Reid. I think we've heard that from a number of <laughs> in, in, people on, over the years. Uh, so let's talk about another story, and this is uh, uh, actually, uh, I've said this before, and uh, I, I still believe it, that question three, the Energy Choice Initiative, is the most important thing that Nevadans will vote for on the ballot, even in some ways more important than the governor's race, uh, in, in the sense that uh, the, the, the new, a new deregulated energy marketplace will have an effect on every Nevadan. Uh, and and how prices and access and and, and renewable components and and the rest of it, uh, the 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 only really legitimate think tank in Nevada, the Gwynn Center, uh, did a very in depth report talking to a lot of outside sources. They didn't just do this in house. They interviewed a lot of uh, experts on this and came up with a very comprehensive uh, 111 pages. I think I think it was, uh, and and it was released today on on Thursday. And our our expert, Riley Snyder, uh, who I think no, probably knows as much as any of the experts. They should have interviewed Riley. Uh, <laughs> why did they not interview Riley? Elizabeth? I wouldn't doubt they read some of the stories. They, I actually think that there's many citations of Riley's stories in the report. But 
The report does not say vote yes or vote no, uh, but it raises a lot of questions about the arguments be, being used by both sides. And just from reading Riley's story, I, I will say I have not read the report yet. It appears to me, even though both, by the way, have now reacted, both sides have reacted and both have found things uh, in, in the report to say, yeah, we were right on this. And by both sides, I should tell people, I'm sorry for the long preamble, but I want to make sure people know this, is that the, the no on uh, energy choice is being funded by NV Energy, essentially. There's some labor money as well. And, and, and the yes is essentially all switch uh, that that are center giant and, and, and Sheldon uh, Adelson. I'll, I'll also disclose that switch and NV energy are very substantial donors uh, to uh, the, the, the uh, indie. So whatever we say, we're going to get somebody <laughs> in our donor pool, which happens every, almost every day. But anyhow, I thought based on Riley's story, and I'm interested in what, what you think of this. I thought that the no side could could glean uh, more fodder out of this than the yes side. Again, I need to read the report. But basically by saying you can't guarantee that prices are going to go down, you can't guarantee a vibrant uh, uh, renewable market, which were the headlines uh, 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 of the story, that's pretty good for people who are saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't do this. Yeah. Well, the report actually goes even a little further than saying you can't guarantee it. It says they found no correlation in the states um, that have opened, whether you call it deregulation or whether you call it opening in a market or whatever the case may be, demonopolizing, they found no correlation between that and lower prices for the end user. That is huge for the folks that are against this. Um, and the reason for that is that one of the primary arguments uh, in favor of it is that not only does this increase our renewable portfolio, uh, and not only does it open the market, not only should everybody love it because we'll have more more players and more competition, uh, it will it will lower your energy bills. Um, to have a report from a reputable think tank that says, ah, maybe not, not necessarily true, that's a pretty big deal uh, in this campaign. I also found it interesting and very gratifying that the Gwynn Center included a, a little-known fact about energy in Nevada, which is that about 70% of it is produced fundamentally basically by natural gas sources, uh, and that the biggest factor in price volatility of energy is the volatility of the price of natural gas. That has nothing to do with this topic or with this energy choice initiative whatsoever, but it, it's something that I think people don't know um, and, and that's important in the broader conversation about uh, sources of energy in the state. What's really interesting about this, uh, too, and, and, and I, I will eventually uh, read the report or, or at least most of it. Uh, I, I, but I, I have to tell you that there is so much uncertainty, so much speculation about what, what, what will happen in a deregulated marketplace. The argument by the yes folks is basically, it's got to be better than what we have. You have a monopoly. They don't behave well. They uh, over-earn. Is, is, they is, being uh, NV Energy. NV Energy. We need to break this monopoly. Choice is good. Competition uh, is good, which is going to make a lot of visceral sense to a lot of people. And certainly did in 2016 when there were essentially was no campaign either way and, and, and it passed with... Seventy-two uh, percent of Nevada. That's almost an impossible ship to turn around. I, I would think, but you have seen this campaign by NV Energy getting all these endorsements from elected officials and all the chambers of commerce, trying to create this momentum. And it seems to me that um, uh, that the anti side has spent so much more of their money already trying to lay the groundwork. Uh, and I think that the folks 
in support of this, the choice is good, competition is good. Don't you, like everybody else in the world, hate the power company, especially in July and August in, in, in Las Vegas? I never thought that this had a chance to win, uh, to, to be defeated, I mean, Elizabeth. No, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing today as I was reading that Gwen Center report because, you know, here it is only July. Uh, there's many months for um, the no side to make hay out of this report. They certainly will. And they also have in their favor the fact that Governor Brian Sandoval basically backtracked not that long ago and, and his position on this and said he needed to take a second look. Uh, Representative Dina Titus this week um, came out saying she was completely against it for some of the reasons we just stated earlier on this program. A uh, lot of uh, big name politicians and elected officials now uh, stating that they have concerns about what the actual effects are and using that same word that you just used, which is uncertainty. Um, that's something voters don't like. Voters don't, they love the idea of lower electric bills. They do not like the idea of uncertainty. And I think that's a winning message um, for the for the no side. And if I were on the yes side of this, I think I'd start to be thinking, oh, maybe we're not quite so sure uh, that we've got this one in the bag. They, they might have to spend uh, some more money with their messaging. And so I think, as we predicted uh, much earlier this year, a lot more money is going to be spent on this campaign than I think any other campaign period, possibly including the U.S. Uh, Senate race that we alluded to earlier. The, those are the two biggies, though, uh, in terms of money on the ground. Uh, you're exactly right. And I, I should say that uh, I hope everybody will continue to follow the, the Nevada Independence coverage uh, of this. Riley Snyder uh, knows more about this than any reporter who has ever covered energy in this state. And I mentioned that we we're hoping to do a town hall on, on education and Sunrise Acres. This is the other topic that I think we're really focused on trying to do something on. Yeah, I think we should. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an important issue. It's going to affect uh, people one way or another for years and years to come and affects everyone in the state who pays an electric bill, whether they're a small consumer and homeowner or, or the big operators on, on the strip. So the, this matters uh, very, very much. And, and, and Rob Roy, the head of Switch, who was really leading the drive, has already said he would uh, participate in such a town hall. So, Elizabeth, I'm sorry to tell you, but I'm going to have to use my charm to try to get Paul Cadell, the head of ND Energy. <laughs> and so it could be quite the test. Well, let me know how that goes. <clears throat> uh, I will indeed. Elizabeth, always good to have you here. Thanks for uh, uh, discussing these issues uh, with me. Uh, a reminder, our podcast interviews are also available on KUNV. That's the university's radio station, 8.30 p.m., every Thursday evening. That's all the time we have for this edition of Indie Matters. We want to know what you think, as always. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. Check out the site if you haven't already, nevadaindependent.com. And as I told you earlier, we're on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and elsewhere. Go on there, subscribe, rate us, tell everybody you know. Yell it from the rooftops. I also want to thank Margarita Gamboa again for being here. And as always, I want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And of course, last but never least, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer, who makes us all sound podcast smooth. Ah, and not even with an English accent after her return from the <laughs> UK, but still very smooth. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.